Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. This episode features a conversation with Marie Sands, a Fall 2015 Joan Shorenstein Fellow and Senior Correspondent for Agence France Presse. Marie talks about her newly published research paper, The Persistent Advocate, The New York Times Editorials and the Normalization of US Ties with Cuba. In the paper, which can be read in full at shorensteincenter.org, Marie examines the New York Times editorial board's consistent opposition to the break in relations between the US and Cuba for over 50 years. We begin with Marie explaining why she chose to research and write about this topic while at the Shorenstein Center. I was interested in uh, working on Cuba because um, I lived there for over four years as a correspondent for the Agence France Presse. And uh, the timing was perfect in the sense that my decision to apply to this uh, fellowship was just after the announcement of the resuming of relations between the two countries. So I wanted to focus on Cuba, but obviously in a different way that would be more uh, aligned to the to the concept of the fellowship um, and at the intersection of media and politics. So I decided to work on this uh, normalization, which was historic, through the lens of a leading paper in the U.S. that would be the New York Times, and more particularly on the editorials, because um, prior to the announcement, there was a big campaign of editorials pushing for the end of the embargo and the resuming of the relationships. Marie admitted she was surprised at the consistency of the New York Times' opposition to the embargo over such a long period of time. So going through um, the mass of information you can imagine that exists in 54 years of non-relations, the editorials were really like a thread I took to go through times of uh, very uh, difficult uh, moments in, in in the world, really, because it was the Cold War. Um, it was clear that when uh, Fidel Castro was going to align with the USSR, the sort of warm welcoming of, uh, of uh, his revolution changed, and then you had several episodes uh, like the invasion of the Bay of Pigs, the missile crisis, which put the world on the verge of the Holocaust, nuclear Holocaust, then the boat lifts with tens of thousands of Cuban refugees, the Elian Gonzalez standoff. So the the thread, the connecting thread was the editorials. So the first surprise was to discover how consistent the position of the New York Times had been during half a century. From the very first editorial on uh, January 5, 1961, and that is like the book end to the other book end, which are the, the editorials that were provided just before the announcement of the relationships. The position of the New York Times was always one of, uh, of uh, opposition to the embargo, uh, normal relations with Cuba, which after all is a neighbor uh, of the United States. The two countries are 90 
miles apart, uh, linked by, by history and geography. And this estrangement, which was 54 years in the end, was a, an anomaly. F and for the, for the New York Times, it was perceived, perceived as such from the beginning. That was a big surprise to see this persistency of, uh, of opinion. And that didn't change much, uh, no matter what the administration was, Republican or Democrat, the New York Times was like the constant gardener of that position. And I thought that was really, you know, it's something I, I, I found in a way. So it was also interesting to look at Cuba from inward and not covering Cuba as living there for four years. And it's a very difficult country to live in. And so it was completely different. But I thought it was fascinating, although it was a lot of research, I must say. <laughs> and going back to the 50s, you don't have all the, all the materials or whatever, you know. The US embargo against Cuba is unique in American history, as Marie explains, making it a particularly interesting topic to research. The span of time is, is unprecedented, and it's the country the US has had the, the longest estrangement with, you know, China, it was 20 something years, Vietnam also, but Cuba, it was more than half a century. Even if we think about North Korea, you know, since, uh, since the US didn't have relations with North Korea, it, the, the one country with whom it had very close relations was Cuba, and then, you know, nothing for 54 years. Marie considers the consistent position of the New York Times to be a good example of strong editorial leadership on a matter of particular interest to the American public. Well, I think it's really a story on um, editorial leadership. And uh, that was also very interesting because, as I said, it's a singular country, a singular estrangement, a singular relation. And uh, let's not forget that before the revolution, there was a constant flow between Miami and Havana. There were shuttles, there were ferries going back and forth. A lot of leaders from the Cuban revolution studied in the United States. The wife of uh, Raul Castro was a student at MIT, uh, the head of the secret intelligence, police, army, everything, studied at Columbia University. Fidel Castro came to the U.S. on his honeymoon. So this sudden uh, freeze for over 50 years uh, was really difficult to understand. But what I think what was pertinent was the, the importance of uh, editorial leadership in the newspaper. And that came into evidence actually even recently because last Sunday you had, for instance, the first front page editorial of the New York Times of a topic which has become really dramatic in the United States, which is gun control. And for the first time since I think 1920, the editorial appeared on the front page of a newspaper. So I think there is a very big, uh, you know, uh, grasp of things that can be done through editorials, of course, then remains to be seen who influences who. Does the editorial uh, influence policy? Does the administration influence the editorials? There is no answer to that. <laughs> we asked Marie if she thinks newspaper editorials still have the same influence in the digital age with so many online media outlets publishing an abundance of opinion pieces. 
coming from leading newspapers like the New York Times, which become, particularly at an age where you have more and more papers in paper disappearing, um, I, I think, yes, I think it's very important. And hence the recent editorial on the front page. I think when there is a issue which is at stake uh, nationwide for a big paper, it is important, and I think people take notice. And certainly, I think... Uh, uh, governments take notice. Marie also talked about the impact of a generational shift in attitudes towards US-Cuba relations, as well as the rise of digital media. This decision was taken by young people. It was time to turn the page and 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 they say it themselves, the, the you know, Ben Rhodes, which is the advisor of Obama and all that, and Obama said it in his statement uh, announcing the, the resuming of the relationships. These people were not born when, you know, the, the lead was put on Cuba. And I thought that was interesting because perhaps during all those years, people who remembered the horrible things and the Cubans are so proud and that, but now time to turn the page. The young generation and the old Cuban generation, which is really old because uh, Raul Castro is uh, 84 years old, Fidel is 89. I think they also realize that, you know, you cannot keep time at bay anymore, particularly with, you know, the media, digital media, internet, which is still very, very limited in Cuba. But it's inevitable that you know, this will open. You cannot keep it at bay. You can't. Finally, we asked Marie how she thinks American media coverage of Cuba will change now that diplomatic relations have been restored. Well, Cuba, you know, exerts a fascination and always did, really, for Americans, particularly because it was a forbidden place. So the presence of American journalists on the island uh, on a constant base uh, did, hasn't existed for decades. Um, when I was in Cuba as a correspondent, there were um, obviously correspondents from European medias. Uh, lately, in the late 90s, uh, finally CNN was authorized to open a bureau, so there was an American presence. And then eventually AP also got permission to work from Cuba. So there has been a coverage even before the announce of the normalization. However, that coverage when you work in Cuba is very controlled. Uh, I think now, hopefully, things will change and more people are really interested in going to Cuba, working in Cuba, making business with Cuba because it's like a it's a forbidden island which hasn't been exploited. I mean, tourism, uh, you know, business. I mean, the biggest uh, increase uh, in uh, that uh, Airbnb has known this year is from uh, Cuba, where they open business, and Netflix as well. So I think this thing will, um, you know, will increase. However, considering that the, the Cuban government is not going to change, uh, you know, we might still see episodes of coverage that uh, might be problematic when it touches uh, dissidents, uh, people being arrested, uh, protests and all that. So it remains to be seen. 
But I think there is a lot, a lot of interest, really. I mean, even here at Harvard, I hear about all these trips that have been organized for Thanksgiving, for spring break. Everybody wants to go to Cuba, people say, before McDonald's arrive in the island. But I think there will be many years <laughs> before McDonald's arrives in Cuba. So it's a great place. It's a beautiful island. You can read Murray Sanz's full paper, The Persistent Advocates, The New York Times' editorials, and the normalization of U.S. ties with Cuba by visiting shorensteincenter.org and clicking on Research and Publications. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by extrememusic.com.